You are listening to the teaching podcast of Praise Community Church in Mason City, Iowa. For more information about our church, please visit praisecc.org. A former president, uh, Theodore Roosevelt, uh, once said this. He said, the most important thing and single ingredient in the formula of success is knowing how to get along with people. I find that hard to argue with because really when you think about it, at the end of the day, every single part of our lives is intertwined with relationships. Just think about that for a moment. Your spiritual life is kind of intertwined with your relationship with God and other believers. Your vocational life is intertwined. It's kind of determined by your boss, by employees, by customers. Your social life is determined by your friendships. Your marital life is determined. It's intertwined with your relationship with your spouse. Our role as parents, it's, it's intertwined with our relationship with our children. And on and on it goes. And again, at the end of the day, what life is all about really is making those relationships work and function in a healthy and a God-honoring way. Now, it doesn't take long as a child to kind of realize relationships are hard work. And you discover as you go through life, it doesn't get easier because relationships are difficult. And one of the things I've discovered that really kind of makes relationships difficult is that we're all different, very, very different. We're different in so many ways. Like one bad apple can spoil a whole barrel. One bad relationship can spoil a whole day or a whole week. I mean, just stop and think about how much counseling and therapy is given to people all over this world every day because of relational conflict and unresolved confrontation. So for the next couple of weeks, I wanna kinda just look at the blessings that I think God has for us that I think we can experience and walk in as we as a church together pursue and engage in biblical peacemaking. Here's what Jesus said in Matthew chapter five, verse nine. He said, blessed are the peacemakers. There's a reward, there's a benefit. There's a spiritual benefit when we are peacemakers, when we allow God to use us as peacemakers, he says, for they shall be called the children of God. And one of the ways, again, you and I will inherit and we'll walk out and we'll walk in those blessings that God has for us is by pursuing and by becoming a peacemaker. And I'm just going to tell you right now, peacemaking can and will be difficult work. I believe that's why there's a blessing to it because it is difficult. I believe that, you know, for the most part, I believe most people want peace. We don't always exactly know how to go about that, but I, I believe most people desire, they want peace in their families. They want peace in their workplace. They want peace in the church. They want peace all around the world. Now, it's interesting, if you Google the word peace, and I, I did that this week, 
I googled the word peace. There are currently 4.5 billion, with a B, references referring to peace. It's again, a sign of how hungry people are for peace. As you look at the current world around us, it just kind of seems like, and maybe just it's me, but it just seems like peace is harder and harder and harder to come by. One example of this was a recent article that I read this week, and it was in the Atlantic. And the focus of the article was how the crime wave in the United States is kind of being replaced by a violence wave. And the writer was talking about no longer do we just have a crime wave in, in, in the, our country and around the world, but that, uh, we now have a violence wave. And they were talking about most crimes now being committed have with it an element of violence as well. And one individual interviewed in this article talked about that violent crime is now becoming a public health crisis. It's interesting if you looked at some of the web pages uh, that address the subject of peace, um, and, and I did. I kind of just kind of started looking through the list of their uh, those uh, articles there, and it was just amazing that you'll find kind of an assortment of formulas and approaches to uh, establishing peace. And as I kind of looked through some of these, you know, some of these were, were really inspirational. Uh, they, they were, you know, great, uh, uh, noble ways of establishing peace. Some of them I kind of found were a little simplistic and, and superficial and shallow. But, but nearly all of them were kind of comprised of what I would call a human effort an attempt to resolve conflict and to get along with others. And again, although some of those efforts um, and, and attempts have kind of brought about temporary peace, few of them really kind of reported any kind of genuine lasting results. And nearly all of them really kind of failed to really address the ultimate and what I would see as the core reason that there's so little peace in this world. And, and you can find it uh, in Jeremiah chapter 6 verse 14 and it says there, they dress the wound of my people as though it were not serious. Peace, peace, they say, when there is no peace. There's two common mistakes that we often make, and I'll include myself in that camp when it comes to conflict. And the first mistake we make is we kind of just believe that other people are the main source of the conflict. If you really get down to the nitty-gritty of conflict and the lack of peace in our lives... We don't need to look out there. We don't need to look at other people or situations. We need to start first by looking within. James chapter four, verse one points out the real source of conflict. And again, I want you to understand he's writing to believers here. He's not writing to unbelievers. He's talking to Christians here. And here's what he says. What is causing the quarrels and fights among you? Don't they come from the evil desires at war within you? What you want, you don't have. So you scheme and kill to get it. You're jealous of what others have, but you can't get it. So you fight and you wage war to take it away from them. 
Yet you don't have what you want because you don't ask God for it. And even when you ask, you don't get it because your motives are all wrong. You want only what will give you pleasure. I would say probably 99% of the conflict in our personal lives, in our families, in our workplace, in our church family, really kind of boils down to this. I didn't get what I wanted, when I wanted it, the way I wanted it, so somebody's gonna pay for that. I didn't get it my way, so I quit. I'm out of here. If people would just do things my way, see things my way, oh man, life would be so much better. What is wrong with people? Why can't they just agree with me? And on and on and on we go. And again, the mistake we make is that we think the real problem is out there. It's someone else. It's other people when the Bible makes very clear the real culprit in most cases is living on the inside. That's the first mistake we make in dealing with conflict. Second mistake we make in dealing with conflict is we tend to see all conflict, and I mean all conflict, as negative and something that could and should be avoided at all costs. Now this is me. I, I am the poster child of this one. Okay, if you look up conflict avoidance on the internet, you'll find my picture there. Okay, I'm all over this one. And partly because I kind of grew up in a family where I never ever saw my mom and dad fight. I never ever saw my parents argue. I never saw my parents exchange a crossword. I never ever saw my parents exchange uh, uh, even a dirty look. Never. Never ever could remember a time that my parents ever experienced any conflict. So imagine my shock at the age of 18 when my parents got divorced. I'm like, what the heck? How do you go from never ever having any kind of a conflict visibly, noticeably, to now divorce? I, I didn't understand that. And it's because I had this modeled that my parents avoided conflict at all cost. And then it took the ultimate cost, their marriage. So that's what was modeled for me. And so again, we, we, we tend to see conflict, all conflict is negative and it needs to be avoided at all cost. The reality is nothing can be further from the truth. There are those in the church, you know, we kind of uh, believe sometimes that if we could just be better Christians, oh, if you could just be more godly, if you could just be more like Jesus, there would be no conflict. And again, the reality is as long as there are two or more people occupying this world, there's gonna be conflict. No matter how great, no matter how wonderful, no matter how godly, no matter how much like Jesus you are, conflict is inevitable 
whenever you get two or more people together for just a couple of minutes. The trick, again, is not to try to avoid conflict. Rather, the trick is to learn how to engage conflict in healthy, productive, honoring, biblical ways that will promote and deepen true peace, growth, and reconciliation. I love what someone said one time. They said this. They said, conflict is inevitable. Misery is optional. That's true. And a lot of times when conflict is mishandled, ignored, or avoided, misery usually eventually follows. As a matter of fact, I believe that conflict can have at least two results. Conflict can either lead you to greater isolation or it has the potential to lead you into greater or deeper intimacy. It'll either bring you closer together or conflict will drive you further apart. And the determining factor in most cases is the tools you use to handle the conflict. And we all know from our own personal experience, when you handle conflict in unhealthy, negative, and unbiblical ways, it's just gonna lead you to further and deeper conflict and ultimately isolation. Handle the conflict in healthy, in positive, biblical, godly ways, and it will go a long ways toward resolving the conflict, and in the end, it will bring you closer together. And I'm sure all of us have seen our fair share of this, um, of both of these approaches and outcomes. And Paul seems to kind of understand this and, and have this in mind as he's writing this to the church in Ephesus there, chapter four, beginning in verse 31. He said, let all bitterness, okay, all of it, <clears throat> and wrath, and anger, and clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice, and be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven you. So Paul's kind of saying there, you know, the tools of, of kindness, tender-heartedness, forgiveness, that's gonna yield a much greater harvest of godliness, of righteousness, reconciliation, and peace then bitterness, wrath, anger, evil speaking, and malice will. And this idea of conflict being avoided at all cost, it's, it's nowhere more unrealistic at times than in the church. There are people who think the church, by virtue of what it represents and who it represents, that conflict should just, you know, the church should just be a, a, a conflict-free zone. And when it's not, they kind of draw very, very bad conclusions. You know, boy, that church has conflict, so, you know, we want to avoid that because they're unhealthy, they're ungodly, they're anti-Christ, you know. And again, nothing can be further from the truth. The New Testament church, not only was it a very healthy, a very productive a very godly, a very Christ-honoring congregation, and they were growing by leaps and bounds it also had its fair share of conflicts. And what you discover is those conflicts 
when they were handled in a positive and healthy and biblical ways, it was used to enhance the overall ministry and effectiveness of the church. For example, I kind of talked about Acts chapter six a couple of weeks ago, and there was this conflict that kind of erupted between the Hebrew-speaking and the Greek-speaking believers over widows being discriminated against in the daily distribution of food. So one of the ways that they dealt with that conflict is they called together the 12 disciples and they called a meeting and they decided to put seven well-respected and godly men in charge of making sure that the food was distributed in a fair and an equitable way. And so these 12 disciples, they kind of empowered seven others so that they could remain focused on prayer and studying the word of God. And what started out as conflict was able to be used to foster very positive, very healthy change in the New Testament church. And, and chapter, or verse seven there in chapter six kind of captures the outcome of this conflict. And it said, so God's message continued to spread. The number of believers greatly increased in Jerusalem and many of the Jewish priests were converted too. So we need to be able to see conflict as an opportunity to bring forth, to allow God to usher in a positive and healthy changes and improvements rather than something that to be avoided or, or you know, uh, uh, ignored or just swept under the rug. We need to understand that you know, conflict, again, when, it, when it's used in godly biblical ways, it really has some great potential upsides, some benefits. One upside and benefit conflict has a potential to offer us is it gives us an opportunity to grow and to mature. The New Testament church there, again, I, I just point you back to Acts chapter six. They had an opportunity in that moment of conflict to grow and change. And the way the church did things, they, they, they come to recognize there's some things that need to be handled differently here in the church in order to maintain our effectiveness. And so they made those changes. They didn't avoid the conflict, they took it head on. How many of us have grown in patience with your current job situation? How many of you have had to grow and mature as a parent? How many of you have had to grow and mature as a spouse? A lot of the catalyst of growth and maturity in our lives really have come out of the conflicts we've encountered. And here's the thing, when we refuse to grow and to mature through those areas and issues of our lives, we may end up divorced or unemployed. So one of the benefits of conflict is it really affords us the opportunity to grow and to mature as a follower, as a believer of Jesus Christ. And I think it also has the added benefit of making our witness as believers um, to others more effective and genuine. Another upside to conflict is it affords us an opportunity to explore issues more fully by getting other people's inputs, their perspectives, ideas on how best to handle the issue. It allows each one of us the opportunity to expand our understanding and knowledge of the issue that's you know, behind the conflict, to grow maybe in, in knowledge in ways uh, that you didn't uh, know. It allows you to see the conflict maybe from other people's viewpoints. The details are not provided there in Acts chapter six, 
of exactly how they arrived at the solution they did, but I, I'll bet it's safe to say that the final solution was a combination of several people's ideas and input. I've been privileged to be a part of a lot of meetings and decisions here at Praise where the positive outcomes and successes we experienced were the result of many people sharing their ideas and giving their input. And when issues are more thoroughly explored, the next benefit and upside becomes better decisions can be made. The more complete, the more thorough the information is, the better chances we have of making the right decision. Now that doesn't always guarantee that, but I think it significantly increases the chances of that happening. As people grow and mature through conflict, when issues get more fully explored and better decisions can be made, the next upside is people have a greater tendency to become more committed to the decisions made and there is a greater sense of ownership. When there's an issue of conflict, all of us tend to be more committed to the decisions when we've had an opportunity to give some input. Most of us don't like ideas. We don't, we don't like decisions that have been thrust or forced upon us. All of us have been in those situations and we don't like it. So we need to get rid of this idea that conflict is bad and needs to be avoided. And understand, it's inevitable. It's gonna happen in the best of churches, in the best of relationships. We need to recognize there are upsides. There maybe are things God's wanting to do and to move in through that conflict and just begin to learn and understand how can conflict be used to foster and to deepen relationships in our, in our own personal lives and in our life in our church. Again, ignoring conflict or avoiding conflict, it is not healthy and it is not biblical. One of the biblical ways we are given in dealing with people, especially when conflict is involved, is what Paul says in Colossians chapter three, verse 13. He says, bear with each other. Don't, not, don't be a bear with each other, okay? That's what we, we tend to do. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. I've always maintained, and you've heard me say this a million times, this is a whole lot easier to read, to tell you, than it is to walk this out and to put it in practice, amen? Paul makes it very, very clear. If you're gonna get along with anybody in any meaningful way, in any meaningful relationship, you are gonna have to do two things. And you're gonna probably have to do this more than once or twice. My recommendation to you would be begin to make this a lifestyle. You're gonna have to learn to bear with one another and you're gonna to have to learn to forgive. Now I'm gonna I'm going to just kind of slow down here because I need you to absorb this. 
The verb bear with means put up with difficult people and difficult problems. That's what that means. If you're gonna learn to bear with other people, you are gonna have to learn to put up with difficult people and difficult problems. And I want you to know that applies to every one of us in this place. No one, including me, is exempt from this. Even Jesus had to do it. One time he got so frustrated with the disciples and their lack of faith. He says this in Matthew 17, 17, oh faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. If you wanna be friends with somebody, work with somebody, or be married to somebody, there are just gonna be some things you have to put up with, right, honey? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, why do you think the marriage vow says for better or for worse? You know what, to enjoy the better, you gotta learn to put up with the bitter, right? Most people who get married, I mean, the courtship is wonderful, isn't it? The courtship's great. We're really good at presenting the best of ourselves. So that when we go into marriage, that's pretty much all we've seen of each other is the best. And then we get in, we move together, we start to set up house, and then what starts to come out? The worst. We've all had that experience, right? Go to bed as newlyweds and you wake up and you think, what am I married to? What did, what did you do with my spouse? I mean, the, the reality kind of begins to set in. Most people who get married, they, they have mainly only seen the better in their partner. And when the worst part emerges, they're just not prepared or equipped to deal with it. As a kid, I loved peanut cartoons, I still do. One of my favorites was when Lucy said to Snoopy, there are times when you really bug me. She said, there are also times when I feel like giving you a big hug. And Snoopy replies, that's the way I am, huggable and buggable. <laughs> I love that, that's marriage, right? There are times where we are just so huggable. And other times where our spouse is just buggable, man. They're just on our nerves. <laughs> so it's also important to remember Paul's writing to Christians. And he said, even, some, even the best of you who love Jesus the most, sometimes you're going to disagree. Sometimes you're gonna wanna divide. Sometimes you're gonna wanna part company and go your own way. You're gonna get irritated and frustrated to the point where you're contemplating choking them. Regardless of how you feel, Paul says you have got to learn to put up with other people and put up with their faults in order to get along. Now, I'm, I'm about to burst some bubbles here, mine included. I don't care how hard you work at this. I don't care how good you try to be. People are gonna find faults in you because we all have faults. 
I know, I know, you think you've done a good job of covering over all of those so no one sees them. No, we see them. Everyone sees them. See, not only do we all have faults, but we all have blind spots. Things we don't see about ourselves that others clearly see. So there are gonna be irritating things you see, and there are going to be irritating things about me that I don't see, but are very, very apparent to you. As a matter of fact, I don't see it, and you see it so clearly, and you're thinking, how can he not see that? It's a blind spot. I have them, you have them, we all have them. There are gonna be things about me that bother you, and there are gonna be things about you that bother me. And Paul says, I gotta learn how to bear with you in and through that. Doesn't make it right, not up here justifying reckless or, or bad behavior. Doesn't mean I don't need to work on those things. But I'm just here to tell you, no matter how hard I work on them, no matter how hard you work on them, there are always going to be things we could and should do better because we're always going to have faults. We're always going to make mistakes. We're always going to let people down. Again, we don't want to. We don't try to. It's not our intention. It's just part of being human. The word grievance literally means a cause for complaint. You are going to give someone a legitimate cause, reason to complain against something you do or something you said. So when it comes to grievances that we have with one another, we've got basically two choices. First choice is to look over, to inspect, to uncover, to expose, and to criticize other people's faults. And a lot of us are professionals at that, right? I, I do that at times. I'm a professional fault finder. I'm a professional fruit inspector. Uh, isn't it interesting? We use biblical words to kind of, kind of give us license for that, don't we? I do. I don't know about you. That's the first choice. Second choice is to overlook people's faults. To, to just see other people, accept other people for the way they are. And choose to not let that negatively affect you or your relationship. So we gotta learn to bear with the faults of other people without bearing down on the faults of other people. Amen? You must be willing to treat others the way you want to be treated when it comes to the faults in your own life. Paul also tells us there in Colossians 3.13 that we're to forgive one another. Now there, let me just say, there's, there's a big difference between bearing with someone and forgiving someone. 
When somebody does something that bothers you or irritates you, and they, they're doing it unintentionally, or they're just doing it out of ignorance, or, or just because, you know, they, they just had a careless moment. You need to bear with them. And hopefully, eventually, you work that out. You smooth things over. You make it right. But when someone intentionally, provocatively, does something wrong against you, that is where forgiveness comes in. The word forgive carries with it the idea that something that, uh, of something that is freely offered, not necessarily deserved. Freely offered, not because you deserve it. In other words, when you forgive, you don't expect a payment first. It means giving people what they don't deserve and better than what they deserve. And then Paul kind of tightens the screws. He says, forgive as the Lord forgave you. I think one of the biggest barriers we have to forgiving others is we do not take the time to recognize and understand how much the Lord has forgiven us. If we would just begin to take inventory in our own personal lives of how much God has forgiven us, oh my gosh, I think it would be so much easier to begin to forgive other people. Oh my gosh, God has been so good. We sang about that this morning. We never deal graciously with others if we fail to realize how graciously the Lord has dealt with us. And here's the thing, when you've truly experienced God's forgiveness, you will express God's forgiveness. We need to understand and recognize that real, ongoing, meaningful peace is a priority to God. It matters to him, and because it matters to him, it ought to matter to us. Consider who God sent to restore peace in a broken and conflicted world. Jesus came into a very broken and a very conflicted world. Jesus wasn't born into utopia. He was born into a very, very divided, unpeaceful world. And into that, God did not send angels, mighty as they are. He did not raise up a mighty army to suppress conflict, to enforce justice, to impose unity on the nations. Nor did God send gifted men to teach us how to find peace. Real, ongoing, meaningful peace is such a high priority to God that he sent the best his only begotten son, Jesus Christ. God has graciously sent his son as the one and only path to genuine, lasting peace. He sent Jesus to model for us the way to true peace. Paul describes Jesus and his mission in Colossians chapter one, beginning in verse 15. He said, he, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him, all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, 
all things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy, for God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in Christ, and through him to reconcile to himself all things whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. That's powerful. Every time we take communion, every time you take that bread that represents his body and you dip it in that juice that represents his blood, we are recognizing, we are acknowledging that God's peace was made available to us through the precious blood of Jesus Christ. And our response to that, as you take that, is you're receiving that peace unto yourself. You're receiving that peace into your relationship with God. And then we're to take that and then to begin to extend that to one another. Brothers and sisters, when we fail to do that, I believe we are receiving the body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ in an unworthy manner. It was not the way it was intended to be received. I'm going to close with this quote from C.S. Lewis, and he's talking about the power of love here. Listen to what he says. There's someone I love, even though I don't approve of what he does. There's someone I accept, even though some of his thoughts and actions revolt me. There is someone I forgive, even though he hurts the people I love the most. That person is me. There are plenty of things I do I don't like, but if I can love myself without approving, but, I, but if I can love myself without approving of all I do, I can also love others without approving of all they do. As that truth has been absorbed into my life, it has changed the way I view others. Here's my challenge. Are there people, relationships in your life that you need to invite God into? Are there things that you need to change? That you need to ask God to begin to do a work on the inside of you to begin to change and to transform who you are? So that in changing you on the inside, God can begin to use you to bring change and transformation into the lives of those around you. Will you allow God to begin that work in you? Will you allow God to begin to do that work in your relationships? The change God desires to do in each one of us is an inside job first. That's why Jesus cautioned us, do not try to remove the log from my sister's eye or the speck from my sister's eye if I've got a log in my own. I need to start with the log in my eye and once that's removed, then I can see the speck and know what I need to do to help her overcome that.
The change God desires to do in each of us and each of our relationships is an inside job first. If you're gonna go to someone and work for reconciliation and your job is to point out their faults and their failures and to fix them, good luck with that. Have fun. It starts with us, first and foremost, and then it works out from there. And once he's brought that change, that transformation, when that work of God has been done in us, he will then position us to begin to be ministers of reconciliation to others and to work peace into other people and into other relationships. But it begins with us, amen? Let's stand together this morning. Father, we just again thank you that you are the God of all peace. And that there is no one good but you. No one is perfect but you. And so God, we just come this morning in all of our imperfections and all of our weaknesses and all of our faults and all of our failures, God, and again, we recognize that you are good, you are perfect. And that God, in spite of all that we struggle with, that war within us, that God, you never give up on us. You're always ready, you're always willing to do a greater and a deeper work in us. And so God, this morning we just position ourselves, our hearts, our lives, our relationships before you. And God, we ask, Lord, this morning that you would just begin whatever work needs to be done in relationships, Father, that you would begin that work in us that God, you would really teach us what it really truly means to bear with one another and to forgive as we have been forgiven. So Father, we just come this morning. We just thank you for the work of the cross. We work from that place forward. And we thank you for the many ways that Jesus modeled good, healthy, God-honoring ways of dealing with conflict. And Father, as we kind of press into this series, Father, I pray that you'll, again, just equip us more and more to be true biblical peacemakers. And that God, in that act of peacemaking, that we will truly experience and receive the blessings of that. We again thank you for that. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I want to just uh, take this. You are listening to the teaching podcast of Praise Community Church in Mason City, Iowa. For more information about our church, please visit praisecc.org.